Restoration uh, is a, a hot topic these days. And I'm not talking about uh, the restoration movement. I'm talking about uh, restoring old things, right? It's been a, a kind of a hot topic, something that uh, people uh, like to do and are interested in uh, for quite a while, really. It's not like some, some new thing that people are getting involved in, but uh, restoring old things that uh, people see value in uh, for, for one reason or another, and there's different reasons why people value different things, but we, we hear about people and see people who restore old cars and classic motorcycles and historic homes and furniture from certain eras that is especially uh, special to them, you know, unique things, cool old light fixtures, special bicycles, antique appliances, uh, popular flooring from uh, an era or even a location, right? Uh, old photographs are a, a popular thing, and there's people that know how to do that now. And the reason that people restore these things, of course, is because there's value there, but, but that value many times is, is found primarily in the fact that these things are rare. There's, there's some, sort, some sense of rarity to these things. You, you can't just go buy one from Walmart or order one from Amazon, so you restore these things. In some cases, they're, they're one of a kind, especially if it's uh, a family photograph of yours. Good luck, you know, finding somebody else who's got a better one than you do, right? I mean, you're not going to find that uh, on eBay, right? So you restore these rare things, these one-of-a-kind things, and there are certain people out there who are really good at uh, recognizing things that ought to be restored, things that others might even, you know, uh, f- you know, they might flip them for a profit because they're, they're rare and they realize that that'd be, a, that'd be a popular thing. That'd be something somebody would want if we could restore that to its original condition or close to it. So there's people who specialize in, uh, in seeing that this would be a good thing to restore. And then there's people who specialize in actually knowing how to do that work, actually knowing how to restore those things. They understand uh, that era. They've studied what it's supposed to be like, how it's supposed to look, uh, the different parts and the pieces and how they need to be put right back into place to make it like the original. Well, in our uh, text for today, in Lamentations chapter 5, that we're going to be studying this morning as we finish up our message series on Lamentations, we see a story of people who... who kind of embody both of these things. They saw a need for restoration and they sought how to be restored. They saw a need to be restored. They saw that they needed it and they also uh, sought after that restoration. They looked for one who knew how to restore them. These were people who, like you and I, <laughs> what they deserved was destruction. And we'll talk more about why in, in a moment, but they deserved destruction. Uh, like an old thing that, you know, one of these old things that needed restored, they were badly beaten and weathered and worn, but it was because of their own multitude of sins. They had forgotten God, and because of forgetting God, they had become wicked and immoral. And that's how they were living their lives at this time. And it, it would have been the right thing to do, you know, it would have been justified for God to just throw them out. Don't bother restoring it, just throw it away. Get, get a new people, get a new nation, get some new uh, f- folks, a new congregation who might follow you better. They, they could have, it would have been right to just throw them out. But they themselves recognized that restoration was possible through God. They recognized that restoration was possible and so like I said, they sought that restoration. And so this morning's message is called penitent people because when God's people fail to honor him, don't live their lives in that way and don't uh, actually behave in such a way that they glorify him and honor him, yes, he punishes them. Yes, he withdraws blessings from them. We're going to see both of those things, but restoration, reconciliation, however you want to, whatever you want to call it, it's still 
possible. It remains an option so long as you're still on this earth and the Lord hasn't returned. Restoration is still possible. It's still possible. It's still available, uh, that, that opportunity. But there's only one path back. There's only one route to uh, recover what was ruined, and that is repentance. We must be penitent people for that to happen. God's made it clear through his word. I mean, you can't argue against it. You can't read the Bible and argue against it. He's made it clear in his word that penitent people are restored. It happens every time. Every time someone is truly repentant and could be described as a penitent person, they are restored to him. That's how it works. But those who try to fix spiritual problems with their own uh, human methods, their own strength, those who puff up with pride instead of becoming humble and submitting to him, repenting and turning to him, those who puff up with pride instead, those who spend their energy you know, justifying why they are behaving the way they're behaving or justifying lukewarm lifestyles, they aren't restored. They will not be reconciled to God. God welcomes back penitent people. And in the way that Jeremiah pins this last chapter of Lamentations, we can see what penitent people do. And that's where we're going to get our value this morning is by looking at what these penitent people do. And this is not just true of these particular penitent people. This is true of anyone who is truly repentant and could be described as a, a penitent person. So begin reading with me in Lamentations chapter 5. Uh, you can use your Bible. You can grab a blue Bible from in front of you and flip to Lamentations or you can follow along on the screen up here. Um, or I challenge you to try to do both. I like to see you all trying to, <laughs> trying to follow along both ways. All right, I'm just giving you time to flip to Lamentations because I know sometimes it takes a minute. All right, Lamentations chapter five, beginning in verse one. Jeremiah writes this, he says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We've become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youths stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate. Young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. So the first lesson that uh, we can learn here is that penitent people recognize the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. Throughout Jeremiah's five laments, which make up what we call the book of Lamentations, um, he has thoroughly, thoroughly described all of the horrible suffering that they've endured at the hands of the Babylonian Empire, right? And while Jeremiah has consistently attributed the role of the ultimate aggressor as God himself, he has also just as consistently confessed the fact that they deserved this. They deserved God's wrath. What they were getting was the just rewards of what they had, uh, had produced. 
they had sown this kind of seed for what they were reaping. They were reaping what they sowed. The, the punishment fit the crime, and, and Jeremiah has been, uh, he has not missed a, a single uh, chapter, as we would call it, but not one of his laments, the first four funeral dirges or this fifth, uh, this fifth lament, which is a prayer, none of these have excluded the fact that we have sinned greatly. Woe to us. You know, our transgressions are, are described as multitudes, right? He has not missed an opportunity to make sure that God knows <laughs> It, that they know, and that the Israelites, the, those in the kingdom of Judah knew, we've sinned, and we deserve what we're getting. If we go back to where we began four weeks ago in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 5, we see why the nation of Judah suffered uh, as they did. It says right there in the, the middle of the verse, it says, the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. The Lord has caused her grief, what they're suffering, because of the multitude of their transgressions. Not because they slipped up or they, they crossed one particular line and, and God was just, you know, he just jumped right on them at that, that one opportunity. This wasn't one or two sins that God was dealing with here. The scripture is clear. Jeremiah himself is clear. God was punishing a multitude of transgressions here. The fact that the, the land that had been promised to them was now in the hands of their adversaries the fact that they now had to pay others for some of life's most basic necessities, the fact that they were hunted and constantly in fear of their lives, the fact that going and gathering grain from uh, the, the fields out in the valleys outside of the city was now a death-defying uh, feat, the fact that they were now feeling the, the fever or the intense sickness from famine, from starvation, all of these things that were happening to them were the results of their multitude of transgressions. In our text in Lamentations uh, chapter 5, verse 7 there, uh, that we, we kind of buzzed over, in verse 7 there, Jeremiah wrote, Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Now, it's tempting to read this and, and hear this as um, it, maybe it sounds like, We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. You drop hints. You, you try to get people to feel the, the, the awkwardness of the moment, the pain of the moment, and it's just, woo, just going over their head. They're, they're not getting it, right? They're not, they're not, they don't seem to be learning what you're trying to teach them through this indirect lesson. Well, Jeremiah here is, is saying, we, we get it. We feel every bit of it. We see what you're doing here, God. You know, it, it's like when you ask the, the child, have you learned your lesson? You know, if they're like, I'm still mad. You know, well, apparently you don't understand what the spanking was for. You don't understand what those two hours in your room were for or that 30 minutes in the corner were for. And so until you understand what the punishment was for, back in the corner, right? Jeremiah's saying, we get it. We're ready to come out of the corner, right? We, 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 he's acknowledging all the pain, uh, not because God doesn't know uh, that they've been through it, but he is um, acknowledging it to God and, and saying, we feel it. We feel what you're doing here, Lord. We understand it. Uh, can we come out now? All right? Penitent people do this. Penitent people recognize, not just know, but acknowledge, recognize that the punishment fits the crime. And penitent people know and believe what the New Testament says about sin and its consequences. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
Okay, kind of explains that uh, sour grape verse again, right? For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, the unrepentant, they mock God in, in the way they behave, in the way they fail to acknowledge that well, what, they're, what they're getting is what they, they deserve. They, they, they pretend like that. That's not how the world works. They pretend like that's just not, not the, 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 the fact of the matter, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 uh, says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Talking about God. Can you imagine calling God a liar? No, you can't because none of you would do it. But we do when we, we try to ignore our sin, when we try to act like if we don't acknowledge it, maybe God won't see it. That, that's, that's mocking God. That's making a liar out of God. It, pretending like he's not going to see it if we don't acknowledge our sin. Penitent people do that really uncomfortable thing that uh, we sometimes call looking in the mirror. Right? Spiritually speaking. Looking in the mirror. Penitent people see the, the, the pain that their sin has created. They, they acknowledge that to God and they make the necessary adjustments in their life uh, however dramatic those may need to be. They just make those changes. They just adjust. They course correct based on God's word, based on what they see. They recognize it, they acknowledge it, and they change. They repent. That's what repentance really is. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And if it's just a change of mind, it's not repentance. You know, and if it's just a change of behavior, like, oh, let me try this instead. If you don't get it in your mind and then change it in your behavior, you haven't repented biblically. Penitent people don't play games. They don't mock God by refusing to uh, see their sin and that it's causing all the pain. Penitent people realize that the punishment fits the crime and they recognize it. If we continue on in our text, picking up at verse 16 is uh, where we left off there. <coughs> we'll see some more penitent people behavior. Jeremiah writes here, continuing on, starting in verse 16, he says, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. You hear it? There he says it again. Woe to us for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate. That's where the temple was. Now it lies desolate. Foxes prowl in it. Animals are making their homes here now. So what do we see here? Penitent people recognize that blessings are borrowed. Blessings are borrowed. In a sense, we, 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 we could say it this way, right? In verse 16, Jeremiah references this crown, right? He, he, in fact, he doesn't just call it uh, a crown. He calls it the crown. And he says that it has fallen. And he says that it's fallen from our head. Whose head? Well, he's talking about the kingdom of Judah. He's talking about Jerusalem specifically, the, 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 the great holy city in, it wasn't that holy in this day, but uh, known as, commonly called the holy city. It's fallen from our head, collectively, these people. Now, crown obviously draws our mind to certain thoughts, right? Royalty is, is what comes to mind immediately. But also with that, prestige and honor and glory and wealth and nobility, things like this. And when a crown falls from a, a head like that, we think of that nobility, that royalty, that prestige and rank and honor and wealth and all these things also being stripped away, right? Because royalty don't typically say, you know what? kind of tired of being king and having everything I want and <coughs> servants and you know whatnot. I think I'll just let somebody else do it for a while. Doesn't usually work like that, does it? Usually when a crown falls from someone's head, it's, it's stripped off of the head or it's because <laughs> there went the head and there goes the crown. That's what we think of when a crown is falling and that's a fairly accurate picture, is it not? 
it's a fairly accurate picture of what's going on in here. The, the, the glory has been thrust from the head that was wearing this crown. Now, Jerusalem obviously didn't literally wear a crown. They didn't all walk around uh, with crowns on every citizen uh, of the place. But in a certain sense, they as a nation were wearing a crown, right? They, like a person who typically we would think of as wearing a crown, they held a special position. They had that nobility and rank and honor, that, that high position, uh, that status, that prestige. <coughs> they, they certainly did. And like a crown that has fallen from the head, so went all of those special blessings that Israel had. With that being said, where did these blessings come from? Where did they get them? How did they get that crown? They earn it for themselves? No. <laughs> came from God, right? God gave them that crown. God gave those blessings to them. And Jeremiah rightly says in the second half of verse 16, Woe to us, for we have sinned. There goes the crown, and the very next breath, woe to us, for we have sinned. That's why. That's what happened, right? God gave it to them, and it was their immoral and idolatrous lifestyle that had caused all those blessings to be removed from the nation. See, blessings are given by God, and even when he gives those blessings, they're still his, right? He gave you those to use. He gave you those to manage, to, to use for his glory in his service, right? He gave those to you, but they're still his. And so, if he finds you not using your blessing right, if he finds you abusing your blessing, or, or if you are found uh, having forgotten God in the midst of being blessed, he not only um, can, but will, right? It's his, and he has the power, the ability to remove that blessing from you. And let me tell you, it's the best thing for you. If you find yourself in that position, it's the best thing for you that he removed that from you so that you don't just continue down the path that you're going. It's, it's a wake-up call, people. It's a wake-up call. It may feel like our crown is taking a topple. It may feel like our, our wealth and our, and our honor and our popularity and um, you know, the things that, that you know, we, we kind of were taking for granted, the things that uh, we, we wish would never be taken away from us, it may feel like those things are being stripped away from us like a, like a, 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 a noble person who has had their crown stripped away. James 1.17, of course, tells us that every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, right? Coming down from the Father. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, that our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts. And in Matthew chapter 25, in verses 14 through 30, uh, we have what we call the, the parable of the talents. Jesus tells us parable of the talents, where it's impossible to miss the fact that God gives us gifts to use, like I said, for His glory for his kingdom, for the furtherment of his kingdom, to, to win others to him, to, to spread his love to others so that they will love in the way that he loved, so they will live for him, so that they will uh, serve him. And when we do that, when we use those blessings and those gifts the right way, the way we're supposed to, we're shown in this parable that we're commended and, and we're honored by him. And this parable also points out that those um, who, he, who prove that they can be trusted will be entrusted with more. He will give them more to manage, more to steward for his glory, in his service, for his kingdom, and so on. But when we don't use those blessings, when we don't use those gifts the way that we're supposed to, when we misuse these things that he's given us, verse 26 of this parable portrays the master's response as, you wicked, lazy slave. That's what the master says. When we don't use what, what he's given us on loan, if you will, for his glory. 
He's given you that to invest for him. He says, you wicked, lazy slave. And unlike the good servants who received more to manage from the master, remember what happened to the, the wicked, lazy slave's talent, the, the, the gift that he had been given, the thing, the, the money that he had been given to invest for the master? It was taken away, right? Not only did, he didn't, he didn't get more to uh, manage for his master. He, it was taken away from him and he was, he was kicked out, right? And, and that's, a, that's a whole other sermon that we could uh, go down that path and I gotta uh, stay out of that for now. But that talent was taken away from him. See, blessings are borrowed. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, which reminds us of someone, right? <coughs> Bible scholars in the room reminds us of Job, Right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. We read about Job in the Old Testament, of course. Job is an example of someone who had a lot of blessings taken away. A lot of things taken away. Now, albeit not because of the scenario we're talking about this morning, not because of his sin, Job was a righteous man. Again, there's another story for a, a different sermon. But, but all, all, all the same, he did have blessings taken away. But what I want us to see, what I want us to see from Job, is that he had the proper outlook when this happened. He had the proper outlook that we can learn from when we have blessings taken away for any reason, right? Job chapter one, verses 20 through 22. This is right after, you know, the, the servant that keeps, you know, the, the one who survives that keeps coming and saying, master, this happened, master, that happened, master, this happened. All your stuff is gone. Your children have died. All this stuff is gone. His health, you know, Job lost everything, but the breath in his lungs. And his response is recorded here. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, right? He, he's upset by it. You know, he's human. He's real. This is fine. And he fell to the ground and what did he do? He worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. I didn't have it before and I don't have it anymore. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Listen to this. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22 tells us, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Again, Job did not have his blessings taken away, removed because of sin, but Job understood that blessings are borrowed. The Lord gives and the Lord can take away. We are born into this world with absolutely nothing, and he gives us more than we need, more than we, we require. When blessings are removed for any reason, you guys, we should respond as Job did. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because penitent people don't blame God, they bless God. Penitent people, they, they bless God. They, they look inward with a sober mind and, and to see if perhaps maybe some of the pain they're experiencing is because of their own sin, because they aren't managing God's blessings the way that he would have them to. They, they do that because penitent people recognize that blessings are borrowed. And then there's one more penitent people lesson for us in these last few verses of Lamentations chapter five. Uh, if we pick back up in verse 19 and read through to the end here, uh, we can see this last lesson. He says, you, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Listen to this. Restore us to you, O Lord that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. Penitent people recognize that God is eternally enthroned. Don't lose the context here as we, as we pick up there at verse 19. 
in the first 15 verses, remember all the, all the great suffering, all the horrible calamity, the tragedy that had come on them is described and it's described to God. And then in verses 16 through 18 that we, we just finished up with um, in the last lesson there, Jeremiah described the sorrow of having those blessings removed, that, that crown removed from their head. He, he goes through all that. And, and in verses 17 and 18, after talking about that crown and woe to us because we have sinned, he points out that their, their, their heart is faint because of it. Their eyes are dim because of it. He said in verse 18 that, the Mount, uh, that Mount Zion, where the temple previously stood in all its glory and splendor, and they were so, so proud of it, it lay desolate now. And then in verse 19, that's where he says, You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Well, there's an emphasis on the, the contrast here. Do, do you see it? Jeremiah and his countrymen had lost nearly everything. Everything they had is gone. But the Lord's throne, the Lord's power, the Lord's rule, the Lord's glory is not and cannot be taken away. Cannot be removed. You see, earthly things pass away. But God remains. Conditions worsen, but the Almighty never changes. Things uh, can be and often are destroyed. God's throne can never be destroyed. Do you see how Jeremiah has built there? And he has made that turn, and now he's saying, we've lost all these things we've, we, we had from you. We deserved it. It's all gone. It's terrible. Restore us, please. Your throne's forever. All this stuff, it's been lost. And turns out, the way we used it, it didn't matter anyway. Your throne is forever. You rule from generation to generation. Penitent people recognize that God is eternally enthroned. And that means more than just that he gets to sit in a special seat, right? He's eternally enthroned. He has that kind of power, that lasting, everlasting power, all power, and it never goes away. And there's no one, no being, uh, human, spiritual, whatever. There's, there's no power, no force in this world or some other that can take it away from him. Penitent people will recognize that God is eternally enthroned. Uh, Doc James E. Smith said, when the disillusioned and the downtrodden recapture this basic truth, they've laid the foundation upon which hope can be reconstructed and petition presented before God. That's exactly what we see happening here in these verses. We're starting in verse 19 and going through to the end. That's exactly what we see. After recognizing the eternal rule and power uh, that the God is eternally enthroned, Jeremiah pleads with God on behalf of the people. He pleads in uh, desperation and complete submission for himself and on behalf of all the people. He goes to God to, uh, asking, them to, asking him to deliver them. In verse 21, he said, Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. See, Penitent people don't just sit around complaining. They don't just sit around feeling sorry for themselves. P penitent people recognize that although this world is fleeting and stuff goes away and stuff is hard to come by sometimes, God is eternally in control. It, it's God that has that kind of power. And if God has that kind of power, then hope is found where? In Him. Yes, from God. That's where hope is. And so if ever you feel hopeless... That's where the hope is. Go to God. Turn to Him. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesied back in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. He said, For thus says the Lord, 
When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. See, that sounds like hope already. And this is the prophecy before all this happened. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's not for you, that's for them, by the way. He says, then you will call upon me and come to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. That's what they want, right? They want God listening. You will, verse 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. What I really want you to notice is that verse 13 right there. What God has to say there in verse 13, you'll seek me and you'll find me. (coughs) You'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. So you've got to go to him. You've got to move. You've got to get up, you've got to walk, and you've got to sit with him. The one who is eternally enthroned. You've got to seek the one with the eternal power and the eternal throne. You've got to turn away from sin and to him. Again, that's repentance. You see, just as, just as the predictions of Judah's destruction were conditional, so is God's promise to deliver them. Just as, as God's prophecy uh, was conditional, uh, that, that, that their destruction was based on their persistent wickedness, whether they persisted in wickedness or turned to him. If they persisted in wickedness, destruction was coming. It was also conditional uh, to be restored. If they turned to him, they could be restored. The New Testament teaches us in Hebrews eleven six that part of pleasing God is knowing and believing that God is a rewarder of people who seek him, right? Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please him, talking about God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who do what? Seek him. Not just believe in their mind, not just do actions that they think are holy or righteous. Those who are seeking him, Those who actually want to find him, know what his word says, live for his glory, not just be a part of American churchianity, but to actually be a a Christian. Or as Jerry Paul likes to say, a a Christian. He likes to really put the emphasis so you you remember who you're living for. Christ himself taught us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You've got to seek. You've got to go after him. The reason the New Testament, written hundreds of years after Jeremiah's life, by the way, the reason the New Testament still, at this point in the game, is instructing us to seek God is because he is still on the throne. He's still where the power is, and that ain't changing. That throne's not going away. That power's not going away. There's not going to be some other source that rises to the top. It's not going to be like, you know, we're over here like, you know, the United States has been in control for so long. We're, we're the power. We're the great power. But one of these days, China, China, Russia, Russia. No, the, the tables don't turn with God. He's the only one that's got the power. And nobody's going to come up and steal it from him or become an option number two or a plan B. He's it. He's still on the throne and uh, penitent people recognize that he's eternally enthroned. If we suspect that our suffering might be because of our own sin, there's all kinds of paths to further pain. There's only one path to relief and restoration. Turn to the one who rules forever. Turn to the one whose throne is from generation to generation as Jeremiah puts it. Penitent people recognize that God is eternally enthroned. And they, and they live like it. 
And so as we wrap up this message series from the book of Lamentations, let's be sure to learn from the pain. Let's be sure to learn from the suffering uh, that, that Jeremiah and his people, Jeremiah and his countrymen suffered, the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. Let's, let's learn from uh, this, this, this morning's uh, message, this morning's chapter specifically, chapter 5, these three things especially. Let's learn from these, that, that Jeremiah recognized that the punishment fits the crime. Judah had sinned greatly, and they were reaping what they had sown. Jeremiah described uh, that the, the blessings are borrowed, he, or he recognized that blessings are borrowed. He described that crown that had been taken away, that crown that had fallen, those blessings that they had lost. And Jeremiah recognized that God is eternally enthroned. He acknowledged that very fact when he cried out to God on behalf of his people. He, he sought God, knowing that God never changes and that he has the power to save. So this morning, the question for you is, have you accessed that power? You access the power of God. He's eternally enthroned. There's no other place to find salvation. There's no other place to uh, find restoration. There's just no other way. And that shouldn't make you feel like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm just so desperate because I don't have any other options. No, it, it's like, you know, some people say today, you know, God's all I have, but he's also all I need, you know. Nobody says, you know, well, I just got $10 million. Oh, great. Well, but it's only 10. That's all you need. <laughs> it's more than you need. You're fine. Don't, don't go whining to me, right? God is everything you need and then some. Because just when you think like, but I don't have all the stuff that other people have, then you remember, but I got a lot coming that the Bible says a lot of people don't have, right? narrow is that gate. That gate is small. That path is, is narrow and it's, and it's straight and there's people who like to walk around like this and that path is, is straight and narrow and it says there's few that find it. And so, wow, if you got God, you got everything. So the Bible outlines very clearly how we can get God because our, our sin our rebellion, our transgressions separate us from God, right? Isaiah talks about that. He, he says that it's our transgressions, our iniquities. They've created a separation between us and God. Now, we can't reconcile that, right? If we're guilty of death because of, of our sin, if we're guilty of being separated from God because of our sin, there's nothing we can do to fix that. I don't have some spiritual wand or some ability to rise up and say, you know, yeah, God's up here, but I can, I can go up there and also do what he's doing. No, you can't do that. And so in that sense, you, you kind of feel helpless. But God, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, still spitting in his face, still stomping on his law, still rebelling against him as mankind, you know, you weren't alive back then. <laughs> as mankind was treating his law that way and dishonoring him and not bringing the glory that they should have to him, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Part of the Godhead himself. God the Son. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. Hard to understand, but it's one God. Three unique persons or personalities, if you will. And Jesus, God the Son, came in the flesh. Uh, Colossians 2 9 says, In him all the fullness, all the fullness of deity, Godhood, dwelled in bodily form. Wearing, you know, flesh like you and me. 
suffering the same pain that you and I did, enduring the same temptations, and coming through it all, the Bible says, sinless. Perfect. He kept the law perfectly. And so as God, and as a human who could suffer on behalf of humanity, he was able to be the, he was the only one able to be the perfect sacrifice, to be our substitute, to die in our place. You see, it's something you should study out sometimes, the the fact that he was qualified to do this. It wasn't just like, well, let's put somebody else up there for us. Only God could do this. Only God could do this in human flesh. It had to be done this way. Plan A, no plan B, had to be done this way. And it was. He died on the cross, he was buried, he rose on the third day. Now, the Bible makes it clear that if we don't obey the gospel, we'll die in the full guilt, the full weight of our sins. How do you obey the gospel? Well, first of all, you got to hear the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You got to hear the gospel, Romans 10, 16, uh, 10 17. Um, you got to hear it. You got to believe it. You've got to repent of your sinful way of living. You've got to be willing to confess that uh, you believe Christ is the Christ, the anointed one, the, your, your savior, the world's savior, the only way, the, the one way, the one truth, the one life, it's all found in him. You only come to God through him. You gotta be willing to confess that. Not just here as like a magical incantation where repeat after me, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. No, it's gotta be a lifestyle, you guys. This has to be the way we live. Confessing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we have to be immersed into him. And, and that really brings us up to the crux of this obeying the gospel thing. The, the, this is the, the, the last thing a sinner does. From here on out, after this point, you've become a Christian and you're going to be living like a Christian. It's the moment of your baptism. If we're going to obey the gospel, the gospel's got to play a role in here somewhere. And Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 says that when we're baptized, we are uh, baptized into Christ's death. That's the first part of the gospel. We are buried with him, it also says, in baptism. It says baptism all over this so that we know it's in baptism. Baptized into his death. It also says buried with him like Jesus was buried, right? Second part of the gospel. And then raised to walk in newness of life like Jesus was raised to walk in newness of life by the power of God. That's the death, burial, and resurrection and that's our death, burial, and resurrection and that's a participation in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so without immersion, Without that, that last step, if you want to call it that, there's no salvation. That's when we become a Christian. If you want to assign a moment to it, you know, if you want to split hairs and say like, well, how far do I have to go to become a Christian? You got to get to this point, okay? But if you got that kind of attitude, if you're how far do I have to go, you know, at what point can I stop? Well, then, then just, you know, don't bother. But if, you're, if you want to seek him, you want to live for him, you want to sign up for the Lord's army. You want to put your life on the line for him and for his glory and for his kingdom. Then by all means, whosoever will may come. Come and drink the water freely, scripture says. It's not hard to do these things. It takes your heart and your mind to want to do them. And this is your faith in action, obeying the gospel. And so if you need to talk about that this morning, uh, I'd love to chat with you about obeying the gospel. And, and, the, and the cost, you know, to count the cost, to think about that before you make this decision. I'd like to talk to you about that uh, today. If you're here and you've heard this spiel a million times and you're ready, let's do it right now. 
But if you've got any hangups, any hurdles, anything uh, that you just need to, to talk about, we just need to get over this. And if I, could, if I could just understand this one thing, if I could get over this hump, man, I'd be all in. If, if, if that's how you feel, well, let's, let's talk about whatever that question is. I don't care how silly you think it is. It's not silly because your salvation is riding on that question or those questions or that topic or that scripture. So if that's the case, hey, let's talk about it today as quickly as possible, tomorrow, whatever. But uh, don't, don't tarry any longer than you need to because we don't know how long we have on this earth. We don't know how long we have before the Lord returns, right? The, the nothing is guaranteed other than in Christ. That's the only place we find guarantees in this life is in Christ. And so if you're not in Christ or you're not sure if you're in Christ, let's talk about that. We're going to stand and sing our invitation song here. Uh, this is the time for you to be thinking. Uh, 349, page 349, seek ye first. And that's the challenge, is to be seeking him. And to be seeking him first, talking about priority. He should be first priority. Need to seek him that way.